I promised you a Tim Hawkins video every week, so. That's true. Yeah. Best, though, is the way people, the way they pray over food. Start it over. The way we pray over food, we don't know why we say it. Best, though, is the way people, the way they pray over food. That's the part. When we pray over food, we don't know why we say it. You ever heard this one? Lord, bless this food and the hands that prepared it. <laughs> the hands that prepared it. <laughs> why not the whole body? <laughs> no. Just the hands. <laughs> <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> Best, I love this one over food. Sometimes we pray over food and ask God to make up for our bad choices when we eat. That's funny. <laughs> what is Lord bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies? Lord bless this bag of Cheetos. <laughs> And this Jumbo Dr. Pepper Lord somehow make this nourish us in some way. I don't know how you're going to do it, Father, but we just trust in you now. Father, change the molecular structure of this food. This complete trash we're about to shove in our gullet. Change the Cheeto into a carrot stick on the way down. Spirit of low carb, rain down on me now! I pray a hedge of protection around my pancreas, Lord! Right now! Intervene! <laughs> uh, that one has a special place in my heart because it's about Cheetos, so. What? No, I did not, but Stephanie did get me a firehouse sub. And it was turkey, so it was kind of healthy, all right? And I had a, a diet Mountain Dew with it, so. So I decided, um, whether you like it or not, I'm going to give you actually some. Who, if you were here Sunday morning, you heard about uh, Tom Schrader and uh, how much better he's doing. How, okay, you heard that? Um, so he was at our uh, monthly man, uh, pastor's meeting today. You can tell I used to be in retail. I called it the monthly manager's meeting. Anyway, uh, he was at our monthly pastor's meeting today, and he was there all day. He even stayed for the lead team meeting, and he didn't he look good? He spoke. He spoke at the meeting for about 10 minutes. He looked like the old, the old Tom, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So that was great. So when Tom got really sick, I mean, he's been sick for some people would say 40 years, but he, I mean, physically ill, he's been sick for six or seven years. He's had quadruple bypass. He's had um, prostate cancer surgery. Uh, he has lupus. How many of you know he has lupus as well? Um, and so when he got sick in February and March, last, uh, this last February and March, and couldn't do anything, um, and was homebound, and he talked about that today, spending six months at home, just being at home. And um, I start, I was, he asked me if I would finish his priority living studies during the week for him. So I started teaching those. Um, that's the first time I taught uh, uh, postcards. And uh, so, yeah, this is a rerun, but it's better now because I've thought more about it. But at any rate... Um, uh, the, the noon study, at the noon study, there's a, there's a guy there that attends the noon study that I've seen around for maybe 20 years. I didn't know his name, but I'd always say hello to him. He'd always say hello to me and, 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 and that. And so as I started teaching on a regular basis at the noon study, he would come up and talk to me and ask me questions. His name is Bill Lawrence. He's 90 years old. He still drives. And um, every week... He drives down to the Alhambra prison complex, and he teaches uh, 
prisoners the Bible every week. He's 90 years old and he's doing this. And so one day we're talking and uh, he says, hey, and this has to do with Tom. He loves Tom. He says, hey, would you, um, would you be interested in coming over to my place and let's just hang out together for an hour and I want to ask you some questions. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. Where do you live? And he said, well, I live at the terraces. Do you know where that is? Well, it's, it's a mile and a quarter north of where Jackie and I live. It's, you know, easy. I could walk there. And uh, so, yeah, I said, I'd love to come over. So went over, and we go into the little terraces cafe. It's an assisted living place. You know the terraces? You know, you got, must know the terraces. His wife is uh, now in severe Alzheimer's, and so he's her primary caregiver. And occasionally he has somebody come in so he could like do things like meet with me and go to the Alhambra prison complex and everything. So we go in there and, and literally he pulls out a notebook and he's got a list of questions that he wants to ask me. And there are, it's all this theological stuff and he's a, he's a student of the Bible and all that. And he's just as sharp as sharp can be. And he's funny and he's got a sense of humor, all this stuff. So we're talking. So finally, I said, so what did you do? I mean, you're obviously retired. What would you do? And he said, well, I was an a OBGYN. Oh, okay, okay. He practiced here, and he said, yeah, my practice was here. And he said, well, tell me about that. So he told me about medical school and where he grew up, medical school, and he was practicing in West Texas. And, and in 1957, he left his practice in West Texas, and he came out here, and he opened a practice in 1957. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I, I was born in 1959 at Good Sam downtown. And he said, oh, well, who delivered you? And I said, uh, well, it was my father's very best friend. His name was um, Bob Jones. And he goes, yeah, Bob and I were partners. We practiced together. And I said, well, wait a minute. Now, Bob Jones is a really common name. Um, it, it, and he said, yeah, well, this is the Bob Jones who has a son named Robert Jones, very clever, um, very original, and, and married to Marlene. And I said, yep, that's him. I mean, how many people do you know named Marlene? So I said, yep, that's it. And he, he's like, yeah, Marlene was a, was a patient of mine until I retired, you know. So I had a great time with him, and I said, I said, would, would you want, I said to him, would you want to meet again? And he said, yeah. So this is back in April, and we've been meeting every, every two or three weeks ever since. And I go in there, and I'm telling you, we fill that hour. That hour goes by like that. So in June, I went in. And we talk a little bit, bit about Tom every time. And I, June, I go in, and he, and he says, uh, um, and I, I have to tell you, I'm not, this is not my favorite question to be asked because I always know what's coming next, and I can never promise anybody something. But he said to me, if I gave you a book, would you read it? And I, you should see the stack of my books that I still have to get to. But it was Bill, and he's 90, and, you know, so he doesn't have a lot of time left. So I said, yes, so... Um, I said, yeah, and he handed me uh, Lee Strobel. How many of you have heard of Lee Strobel? So the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for Easter, the case for, the, for everything, okay? So his most recent book is The Case for Miracles. I didn't even know he had written it, and it's maybe three years old. And uh, he, he gave it to me. I said, oh, yeah, I'd be glad to read this. And, and, uh, and he said, here's why I want you to read it. He says, I'm, I'm a doctor, and I will tell you that God can do things. He can change things. And he says, he says, we need to pray. He says, the power is not in the prayer. The power is in who we are praying to. But he said, I want you to read this book. You're going to come back. We're going to discuss it. And then we're going to talk about how we're going to pray for Tom. I said, okay. So I took it with me on our vacation. And I read it. And I, let me tell you something. I, you know. That I've read Lee Strobel before. It was it was a great book. It's a great book, highly recommended. So I came back and I said, "All right, I get it." And he said, "How are we going to pray for Tom?" And he says, "We got to make sure we're praying for Tom." And so I called Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, and I said, "At the next lead pastor meeting, um, which we do once a, once a month on when, the third Wednesday." We meet for four hours. I said, I want to spend an hour in prayer for Tom. And he said, okay, let's do it. So we all prayed an hour for Tom. And we've been doing that ever since. And I got to tell you something. That's when we started to see the improvement. 
that's when we started to see the improvement. And Tom's been doing great. I, I mean, it he's been told by multiple doctors, you won't drive again, you won't teach again, you won't get your life back, you will never get better. You guys saw him today too, right? Yeah, right? Now, I mean, you know, he's never going to do the high jump or hurdles or anything like that, but, right? He, he did great today. So that's just, I, I just wanted to share that with you. So continue to pray for Tom. And while you're at it, pray for me, okay? <laughs> so here we go, Third John. Lots of stories tonight. That was just the first one. I'm going to read it, we'll come back and unpack it, and we'll just apply as we go along. The elder, so once again the presbyteros, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we, we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Uh, uh, um, that's weird. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon that we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So again, the Apostle John writes it. It's a personal letter, and he's writing it from Ephesus, probably around 85 or 90 AD. And it's written to this guy named Gaius. And he's commending him for his hospitality to, to ministers, specifically to missionaries, to emissaries. And to encourage Gaius to keep doing so in the future that the emissaries, the missionaries' ministries might go well. But he's also writing to warn of the opposition that exists in the form of somebody named Diotrephes. And John is promising that he is going to discipline Diotrephes. So who is Gaius? There's more than one Gaius in the New Testament, and they're not the same. This is not the Gaius that the Apostle Paul knew. This was a friend of John's in a position of leadership and influence in, again, an unnamed church, but most scholars believe this is the church at Colossae. If not, it's one of the other seven uh, churches that we see in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And I think this little postcard has a beautiful and simple outline, and we're just going to work through this outline. Here's, here's the first part of the outline. It's verses 1 and 2, and it's love and truth again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, behold, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So remember last week we talked all about truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. Well, here he is again. And, and again, the, the emphasis is primarily on truth, but, but he's got this love thing going on too. And he prays that it would go well with Gaius. So is he praying for his circumstances? It sounds like it. I think it sounds like it. But actually, that little um, clause there, it would go well with you, 
It means that you would walk in the truth. Literally, it means that you would walk in the truth. In other words, John is connecting walking in the truth with going well in your life, going well with you. That there's a correlation there. Walking with Jesus is the best way that life can go. It's not always easy to walk with Jesus, but it's the best that our, way that our, our life can go. Scott Ashby writes this, Our walk with Jesus may not be comfortable, but he always comforts us. He gives us the power to be able to do it. Uh, we've been going through Ephesians, so when Paul prays for the Ephesians, what does he pray for them? There's two prayers in, in the letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul prays for them. He prays that they would know God's wisdom. They, he prays that they would have the knowledge of who God is. He prays that they would receive the hope into which God has called us. He prays that they would know the riches of God's inheritance. He prays that they would know the greatness of God's power. He prays that they would know the grace of his mercy and love. John prays that it would go well with you, but specifically that you would walk in his truth. So, what is it that we pray for? We pray for our circumstances. We pray that our circumstances would change. We pray that our boss would change. We pray that our spouse would change. We pray that our government check would not change, but go up. That it would be a positive. I mean, those are the things that we tend to pray for. It's not that we shouldn't necessarily pray for those things, but the, the primary thrust of our prayer needs to be in the things of the kingdom of heaven because everything else flows out of that. Verses 3 and 4, I title this Testimonials and God's Stories. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Uh, John had sent out missionaries, and now they are back, having visited this church, and they are telling John of the faithfulness of, of Gaius. They're coming back, and they're sharing what we at Redemption Church call God stories with John. And John is greatly encouraged by these, these God stories. Um, we should remember that people will testify, they will bear witness to the loving way that they, they see us live. And that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Um, God's stories are extolling the faithfulness of God, of watching how God is demonstrating his, it's not just theory, it's now we're experiencing God's faithfulness in our lives. We're seeing things happen that only God could orchestrate. And when we share these stories, people are encouraged. Uh, we, on the third Wednesday, generally what we do is we have an all-pastors meeting, so there's about 50 or 60 of us in the room, and then, and then after lunch we, we go into the lead team meeting, which is about four hours, and it's just the lead pastors, and Tyler, and Neil, and Tom, and now Tom today. But in that bigger group, the, the 50 or 60 pastors from Redemption, uh, we'll spend an hour on that Wednesday morning at the very beginning of it asking for God's stories, to share God's stories. And we get to hear from all the other congregations how God is working in people's lives, in the congregation. And anything where we see God working, we, we can tell those stories. Um, and there's just great encouragement and reality there. I want to tell you a God story tonight to give you an example. And it's about somebody who is a part of our church now. And it's somebody that I actually, I thought, I, I really want to tell this story tonight. Um, but I don't want her to be embarrassed and I don't want to hear, her to hear secondhand that I told her story. So I emailed her and I asked her if I could share it. And she said, yes, please share the story. Hannah, you know her pretty well. It's, it's, it's Karen. Um, so hang in there with me. I just, I love this story. So uh, 
Two years ago, New Year's Eve, um, Jackie and I and the kids had gone over to, my brother has a place in San Clemente. Anybody like San Clemente? Okay, we, we love it. We, he has a place over there. So between Christmas and New Year's, we went over to San Clemente. That, that year, two years ago, um, January 1st, New Year's Day was on a Sunday. And so uh, Jackie and the kids stayed. I flew back because I, I, I wanted to be the one that worked on New Year's Day because I don't have little kids. And um, so I'm flying back New Year's Eve from John Wayne Airport to Phoenix. Now, you need to understand something. I, I, I love ministering. I love shepherding. I love discipling. I love people. I love, I love relationships. I love talking, obviously. Um, uh, but when I'm on a plane, I, I believe that is my time. Okay? And I will get on the plane and I will open a book and every vibe coming off of me is leave me alone, okay? So I just read, you know. Anyway, so I get on the plane and I throw my stuff in and I sit down next to this lady and I look and she's got a book called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss by Jerry Sitzer. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that I quote this, I talk about this book all the time, okay? Jerry Sitzer, um, he's a uh, professor of church history at Whitworth University in Washington. Um, in 1991, he and his family were on a day trip to Idaho, and they were coming back in the family van. They were on a two-lane highway. He was going 65. There was a pickup truck coming the other way, going 80. Uh, the driver of the pickup truck was drunk, and at the last second, he veered over, crossed over, and it was a head-on collision with Jerry Sitzer's family van, so 140 mile an hour impact. Uh, Sitzer's wife, mother, and four-year-old daughter were uh, dead at the scene. His other three children um, spent weeks to months in the hospital recuperating from their injuries, including his two-year-old son who was, who was in the hospital for three months. Jerry himself walked away from, from the accident, miraculously, just walked away from it. Um, as did the driver of the truck who was drunk, which often happens, you know. Um, and then to add to the tragedy, uh, Sitzer's, uh, when they prosecuted the drunk driver, he got off on a technicality, I mean completely scot-free. So uh, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, um, was written four years later by Jerry Sitzer uh, explaining how he saw God work in his grief. And there are a number of chapters in there about how uh, here he is, a church history professor, you know, really solid Christian guy, how he spent a lot of time doubting and, and questioning his faith during that time, as anybody would. And, and I read this book early in my ministry. It's, it's one of the most important books anybody could ever read. I've given away thousands of copies of these to people. I've used it as a textbook at GCU when I, when I taught spiritual formation over there years ago. Everything. It, it's a wonderful book. So when I see this woman sitting next to me with a grace disguised, I, I know that I can't not say anything at this point. So I kind of look over and I say, I see you've got that book there. She said, yeah. And I said, um, that book means a lot to me. I even know the author. I've spoken to him. And um, I'm, I'm just curious, wh why are you reading that book? And she said, well, about four months ago, my husband of 25 years, he was only 47 at the time, and he's my business partner, and he's my best friend. He died of a heart attack, 47 years old. And, you know, I, I was just devastated. I said, that's really terrible. I'm sorry. I said, um, what are you doing with a book? And she said, well, a client of mine gave it to me a couple of months ago, and I'm just now really ready to read it. She said, so I'm just starting to read it now. I said, well, um, I think that's good. I, I, I would never want you to read that immediately after a tragedy, but maybe you're about ready now, and, and that would be good. And, and I can tell you that when you are ready for that book, it will be a really big help. Uh, there's, there's, there's this interpathy that you'll have with, with him. And we talked a little bit more. And then, you know, we didn't talk for a while. And then I started up with her again about 15 minutes before we landed. And I said, so do you live in Phoenix? And she said, yeah. And I said, where do you live? And she said, well, 
If you know Phoenix, she said, you, it's, I, I live at about 38th Street in Camelback. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, um, you know that church just down the street at about 33rd Street in Camelback just got repurposed and reopened last summer? And she said, yeah, yeah, I do. I drive by it all the time. And I said, I'm the pastor of that church. She said, really? I said, yeah. Do you ever go to church? And she said, well, I was raised Catholic, and sometimes I go to the Catholic church. And I said, okay. So then I did what I think is a little bit creepy, but I, I, and I never do this, but I did it anyway. I just felt like the spirit was moving. So I, I, I got out my wallet, and I know this is a fancy wallet. It's a designer, Robert, but I got out my wallet, and I pulled out a business card, and I handed it to her. And I said, here's my business card. That's my cell phone on there, and um, I, I just want you to know that we would love to be able to walk through this with you if you're looking for a faith community to do that with you. And I said, you don't have to talk to me, but we have lots and lots of people who would be willing to walk with you through this, that um, we have lots of women who would be able to do this with you. Uh, and specifically, I was thinking about Ann Wheeler. The Wheelers aren't here tonight, but um, Ann has been meeting with her um, on pretty much a weekly basis for more than a year now. But anyway, I handed it to her, and she said, okay, well, thank you very much. And she said, I've been kind of going to this grief thing up at Camelback Bible, but I'm not going to that church. But yeah, okay, maybe, 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 maybe not, you know. She was noncommittal. So you know how I like to stand around, and you know, on Sunday morning. So four Sundays later, so it was January 29th, I'm standing right over here, and here comes Karen walking down, uh, you know, between the buildings. And I look around, I go, Karen, you're here. And she goes, you remembered my name. I said, yeah. So she started attending here. And then in March, she, she started attending here, but then she very quickly moved to the 5 o'clock service. So she's a regular at the 5 o'clock service now. In March, she told me that her father passed away unexpectedly. She's, I mean, she's just been pounded, okay? But she kept hanging in there and hanging in there and hanging in there hanging in there. If anybody has a right to be mad at God, I think it's her. She just kept hanging in there and hanging in there. And slowly but surely, she started to build a bit of a community here. And, and Hannah, I know you're a big part of that for her now. Um, but that's not the end of the story. <laughs> uh, last September, um, by the way, in a moment of tremendous self-indulgence, Tuesday is Jackie and my uh, 31st anniversary. Um, last September at about this time, Jackie and I were over in Dana Point celebrating our 30th anniversary, and Karen emails me, and she said, y you're not going to believe this. She said, this is totally God working all of this out. She said, the client who handed me Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised, I haven't seen her since she gave me that book last fall. I ran into her today. And I said, hey, what prompted you to give me that book? And her client said, well, about five years ago, I was in seminary at Fuller Seminary, and I had a communication professor who said, <laughs> and Karen goes, I know who your communication professor was. It was Frank Switzer. And she goes, how did you know? Her name is Laura Mitchell. So I've known Laura for a number of years. I, in fact, Jackie and I just saw Laura at Tom Parker's uh, uh, retirement party um, last, last spring. Can you believe that? Can you, I mean, isn't that amazing how things have come full circle? And now, check this out. I never thought we'd get to this point, but Karen, who is as sweet as, and as nice as can be, but really introverted and quiet. She's now part of the greeting team at the 5 o'clock. Isn't that amazing? I just, I love that story. So that's a, that, see, only God could orchestrate that. I don't talk to people on planes. She's not looking for a church, <laughs> you know? And the fact that I taught on this book at Fuller Seminary years earlier to a student, that started this whole thing. Isn't that, isn't that just amazing? Yeah. So... All right, verses 5 through 8, support outward-focused ministries. 
Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles, here's what, uh, here's what that means. They're not accepting anything from the people that they're bringing the gospel to. They're being supported by the church. And they're refusing to take anything from the people <clears throat> that they're um, trying to bring the gospel to so that the people that they bring the gospel to don't think that this is really about money. Okay? It's not that ministers shouldn't be paid, but sometimes how they get paid can become a problem. And so that's why that is in there. It's interesting. And, and it says, these were strangers who came, and you gave, God, Gaius, you gave them hospitality and support. I mean, I know they're, they're, they're Christian missionaries, but nevertheless, they're still strangers, right? Um, and first century hospitality, we need to understand, first century hospitality was not just giving a room for the night. In their context, it was also to give financial help and support. And hospitality is, is clearly manifested as evidence um, of faith. And again, it's, it's the idea of, do you believe in Jesus and do you believe Jesus? Those are two different things. Okay. And, and what we find also repeatedly is that in the gospel, there is a generosity for those of us who know Jesus that should replace greed and coveting. If you read <clears throat> the creation story and what we might call the creation mandate in Genesis 1 and 2, in other words, God has created us and has blessed us, and we become creators using the things that God created so that we might be a blessing to others. That's the creation mandate. That's all over Genesis 1 and 2. That, that idea of generosity and blessing... Um, becomes marred in Genesis 3 by sin, the corruption of sin, and that ethic of generosity in Genesis 1 and 2 becomes replaced by an ethic of greed and coveting and hoarding. It's one of the three, quote, representative curses that God pronounces after um, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. It's the third one that he pronounces to the man. When, when, he, when he says, you know, work's going to be hard now. It's toilsome. You're going to eat the dirt. And so now, when we get paid, you know, we think, I worked hard for that. I toiled for that. I deserve that. That's mine. And it becomes harder to, 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 to be a blessing to others, to give away, because we, we, we feel this hard work attachment and deserving sort of ethos to that money, and so it's hard to separate us from that. And so sin re replaces this ethos of generosity with an ethos of greed and, and, and hoarding and coveting. The gospel reverses that curse and, and leads us back into this ethos of generosity. Just like in Ephesians 5, um, 21 through 33, the gospel should lead us back toward a marriage that looks like Genesis 2, 24, and 25. The gospel also should lead us back to a generosity that looks like the original creation mandate, that whatever we do is going to be done to, to be a blessing to others, to add value to others. That that's how Christians are to live in every aspect of their life. That's where we get all of life is all for Jesus in the midst of that. And verse 8, it says, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we might be fellow workers with them. Should you tithe? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm the only one that answered that, but yes. But I would highly encourage you that in addition to that, you would pick an outward focus ministry. Uh, support a missionary. Support somebody who's doing Youth for Christ. Uh, get involved with Hustle Phoenix. Uh, help in some way, redemption, foster care, and adoption. Do something with alongside prison ministries or prison fellowship. It doesn't even have to be, 
I'm not even advocating, this is not proprietary, I'm not even advocating something that has to do with Redemption Church. Find something that's outward focused and work in it, support it, do something with it. Refugees. Uh, in other words, things having absolutely no worldly or seeming to have absolutely no worldly return on investment, no ROI, no discernible ROI. That if you took this investment in, in some ministry, whether it was in your time or your treasure or your talent, if you took that investment to your board of directors and they said, what's the, what's the anticipated return on investment, you would not be able to give them a number. But you'd be asking them to do it anyway. Years ago, I, I went back to school. I had, I had a change of worldview. I became a Christian. By the way, next week, I'm going to talk a lot about how that happened. I'm going to tell that story. I'm going to tell a bunch of stories next week, too. Um, I became a Christian. My worldview changed. I went back to school, did all my schooling for 10 years. Um, and as I emerged from that, I had to get a job in a church as part of my schooling, and I did that at Paradise Valley Community Church. I did an internship there for nine months. Uh, they asked me to stay on part-time after that, and I did, but I was not going to be a church pastor. I did not believe that that was my calling, I, and I was firm in that. I, I had a desire to teach at the college level. That's what I wanted to do. That's part of the reason why I wanted to get a PhD in Old Testament theology. I didn't get it. I ended up going to ASU and getting my Master of Arts in Communication Theory, another long backstory. But nevertheless, I felt like I was going to be a college teacher. And then through my experience at Paradise Valley Community Church, I began to feel the call into pastoral ministry, and I resisted it with everything I had. And I fought with God over it. And again, several times when I got close and then I backed away, and then finally there was a set of circumstances at that church where it just seemed undeniable that this is what God was calling me to do. I, I was going to become the lead pastor at Paradise Valley Community Church. But before I did it, I went to God and I made a deal with God. Have you ever made a deal with God? These work out really well all the time. Okay? I made a deal with God. I said, look, all right, I'm, I'm done fighting with you on this. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to become their lead pastor. But here's what you need to do for me. I, I do not ever want to do prison ministry. That sounds like a lot of work. It sounds, like um, uh, it sounds a little bit scary to me, and it just sounds like there's absolutely no possible return on investment in that. I said, deal? Deal. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> so I'm two months into being the lead pastor at PVCC, and between services, we had two morning services, and between the services on my eighth or ninth Sunday as the lead pastor, this lady walks right up to me. And she says, Pastor Frank, my name is Leslie Baranzini. Uh, I've just moved down here from Seattle. And the reason I moved down here is because my 19-year-old son, Peter, uh, was arrested a, a, a year ago, and, and um, he cut a deal with the prosecutors, but he's serving five years uh, down in Florence for a crime. And I moved down here to be close to him, uh, his father, my, my husband, is, is wrapping up his career up there, and he's going to be moving down here in about six months. We're going to make this our home. We're going to be here for Peter. And I've decided this is the church that we're going to be in. And so I would like you to start writing my son Peter in prison. And uh, not only that, but I'd like you to, to apply to the Arizona Department of Corrections under the, under the clergy uh, process and and become his clergy and start to go down uh, to um, the Meadows uh, um, unit in, in the Iman complex in Florence and, and visit him. And, and I distinctly remember, she's, you know, about six inches shorter than me, and I distinctly remember looking at her, and I'm smiling and nodding my head. 
like this. And on the inside, I am literally saying, get this woman away from me. What is going on here? And I said, okay, give me the information that I need. And uh, she walked away, and I said, what are you doing, you know? So she sent me the information, sent me the links and everything. So about a week later, I sat down and I wrote Peter, and I said, hey, you don't know who I am, but blah, 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 do you, you want a pen pal, you know? Peter wrote right back, and we started writing, and Okay, that's pretty cool. It took me about six months to get my clergy credentials through the Arizona Department of Correction, Corrections, and I started visiting him. Um, about a year into it, Peter told me about two guys uh, that he had gotten to know uh, named Joe Camara and uh, Charlie Robeson, and that they were amazing artists, and that maybe they could do some artwork for some of the series we were doing, so I started writing them, and it was really funny because Charlie, um, Charlie got my letter, and he said, I'm not writing this guy back. What kind of goof is this guy, you know? I'm not going to write him back, but he said something just kept tugging at him, and finally he wrote me back and said, yeah, I'll do a painting for you, whatever, you know? So that was um, 19 years ago, I think, 19 years ago. And I've become very good friends with Charlie and Joe, and now several, there's a bunch of them now. Isn't it funny how God works that stuff out, you know? But that's, um, that's this idea of, of how we're called to outward-focused ministries that have no return on investment, quote, return on investment, because that's a part of the calling in the gospel. And by the way, here's the most couple of amazing things about this prison ministry that I've been doing and that many of you are involved in as well. Uh, I found when I started uh, visiting Peter and then later Joe and Steve and Charlie and all these other guys, what I found was that uh, they were thrilled that I would come down and visit them and take the time. But every time I walked away from meeting with them, I felt like I got more out of the meeting than they did, that they ministered to me in more powerful ways than I could minister to them. And these guys have become good friends. When Peter got out, he eventually met a woman, and, and they got engaged, and I got to officiate his wedding. And he's got a couple little kids now. and He works for Hanson's Mortuary. He's worked for Hanson's Mortuary since the day he got out of prison. He runs their crematorium. Kind of ghoulish, I guess, but at any rate. Um, Charlie got out uh, two years ago, and he attends here. You all know Charlie? Anybody know Charlie? I know Ben knows Charlie. Charlie attends here. Um, those of you that go to the second service usually, there's a guy that comes in with a lady in a wheelchair. And they sit in the back, and they come up for communion. That's Charlie and his mother. And Joe is still in prison. These are the guys I'm closest with. Joe is still in prison. He's getting out in a little less than four years, and... Um, Jackie and I have offered to let him live with us for six months after he gets out because he has nothing. He's got no place to go. Charlie had a family. Peter had a family. Joe's got nothing, absolutely nothing. But we've become very, very good friends. No return on investment, but incredible joy. Incredible joy and just watching how God works in the midst of that. Verses 9 and 10. Be willing to confront discipline and disciple. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Uh, we don't have very much information on who Diotrephes is, but we know what he is. We don't know who he is, but we know what he is. Diotrephes is a narcissist. He puts himself first. Diotrephes is a gossiper. He's talking wicked nonsense. Diotrephes is filled with pride. He's too good for others. He will not receive the brothers. And Diotrephes refuses to submit to others, but he insists that others submit to him. He does not acknowledge our authority, 
and he stops others from hospitality and then puts them out of the church. In other words, I'm not submitting to your authority, but you need to submit to my authority. Okay. You, some of you have heard me talk about this like almost incessantly, the Henry Cloud illustration of how there's three groups of people in the world. 5% of the people are what we might call wise people. They are people that understand that they are supposed to submit their will to God's and to adapt to God's plan and agenda and life and teaching. 94% of the people are what we call fools. They're the ones, like Diotrephes, who believe that everybody else needs to submit to their will. And they're trying to live their life this way. It's a foolish way to live because you're trying to control things that you can't control and, and it, it never works out. So they're the fools. And then, of course, there's that 1% left over, which, they, which uh, Cloud says, those are the people that you need uh, lawyers, police, and guns for. They're the fools that are so bad that you need to protect yourself against them, you know. Well, this is Diotrephes. He's, he is a huge, huge problem. But this is also a call for discipleship. This is a call for intentional gospel-centered relationships and community that we need to make the effort in the midst of that. That when we get up and talk every single Sunday morning, whoever is hosting the service and says, there's three ways we'd like you to get involved at Redemption Church. One of them you're doing, congratulations, Sunday, Sunday service. The second one, intentional gospel-centered relationships. Are you in an RC? Are you coming to Bible studies? Are you, are you having coffee with people? Are you developing relationships and, and discipling relationships? Are you being discipled and are you discipling others? You need to understand, a lot of people say, I don't have any, I, I can't, I, how could I ever disciple anybody? Okay, you need to understand that even if you're just average, there's millions of people who need your help. So you, you can be discipled and you can be discipling. Just depends on where everybody's walk is. These intentional gospel-centered relationships. And then, of course, the third area, uh, we want you to be able to serve as well. This is a call for discipleship as well as discipline. But Diotrephes is a real problem. Narcissist, gossiper, arrogant. Okay. Are there pastors with this problem? It's not a trick question. Not a trick question. The funny thing is, is if you think about what Diotrephes is doing, he was probably a pastor or an elder at that church. If he had the authority to put people out of the church, so this is probably a pastor or an elder who's doing this, right? Are pastors capable of this kind of behavior? Sure they are. Pastors who put themselves first, really? It's kind of nervy. Um, Tom used to say this all the time. The single greatest impediment to the ministry of the local church is the pastor's ego. It's a bigger impediment than, than good coffee, decent music. It is. Uh, easy ingress and egress from the parking lot. It's a much bigger obstacle. I, I've never talked about this before, but I, I just thought of this um, this last week as I was thinking more about this passage. One of the greatest lessons in humility I've ever experienced was when um, uh, I was at PVCC and Tom texted me, Tom Schrader, and he said, hey, can you come out to the commons in Gilbert and let's, let's grab some coffee together. And I, I, Tom used to text me that text all the time. There was something about this one, though, that I knew was different. And so I texted him back and I said, ooh, mysterious, that's all I put. And he confirmed that there was something more than just having coffee going on. He texted me back and he said, I'll tell you when you get here. So I go out there and I sit down and he said, all right, here's what's going on. Justin Anderson has decided he's leaving Redemption. He's going to go to San Francisco and plant a church. We know what we're going to do in Tempe, Ricardo Stewart. Um, but we're thinking that maybe you're the guy for Arcadia. And he says, now, I'm not offering you the job at Arcadia. 
I just am wondering if you're willing to have a conversation about it. That's all I need to know. And I said, well, I got to pray about it and talk to Jackie. But internally, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I never thought I'd ever get to work with Tom. That's an amazing thing. So I go home, and, and um, <laughs> Jackie comes home, and she knew that this was, there was this mysterious meeting getting ready to happen. With she comes up, she said, what happened with Tom? And I said, he wants to know if I'd be interested in having a conversation about becoming the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia. And Jackie said, you told him yes, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess we prayed about it. <laughs> So I texted him and I said, yeah, let's talk. And he said, okay, I'm too close to the situation. I can't be the one to vet you and interview you. I'm turning you over to Tyler. Now, I knew Tyler. I'd sat in some things that he'd taught before, and we were acquaintances, but we weren't close like Tom and I. So I got to turn you over to Tyler. Tyler's the lead pastor over all of Redemption. He's the one that's going to do it. And let me tell you something. I have never been through an interview or a vetting process like that before in my life. Three months. It was a part-time job. Three months we, we met together. Two to three times a week for hours. It was unbelievable. Um, but here's what I wanted to get at. At one point during our conversations, we were talking about preaching, and I said to him, I said, I'm not worried about the preaching side. I know I can preach. And that was it. And as I look back on that, um, that, that flip, arrogant comment, I can tell you right now that um, it may not have been ultimately a disqualifying comment, but it could have been a disqualifying comment. But, but Tyler let it go. And then a number of months later, after we, you know, he said, okay, we're going to do this, and offer was made, and Neil Pitchell was there, which meant it was official and all that. Tom, Neil, and Tyler came and met with me and signed on the dotted line and all that stuff, and I went to my first Redemption Church preaching collective with all the other lead pastors. And I sat in there for an hour and realized, I don't know how to preach. And I left that, that first preaching collective, and I text Tom, and I said, I didn't realize this until right now, but I've been playing double-A ball. I haven't even been playing triple-A ball. I said, now I feel like I'm in the show. You have some pastors who are incredibly gifted at exegesis and at communication. But the reason I tell you that story is because I was a little cocky about that, and I had no place to be cocky. Even though I thought I did, I had no place to be cocky about that. So pastors are really susceptible to this as well, and that's why pastors need to have an elder board. Right, Jim? <laughs> pastors should be faithful, humble, sacrificial, and they should be strong. And, and really... Uh, and, and all of us struggle with this. I do too. But really, we need to know exactly what biblical gentleness is. Biblical gentleness is strength under control. We do need to be strong, but we need to, we, we need to practice that fruit of the Spirit, the self-control. And pastors are called to be shepherds as well. And one thing that shepherds are supposed to do is to protect the flock from wolves. And this is what John is doing in the process of writing not only 2 John, but also 3 John, this letter. He's, he's trying to protect the flock from, from the wolf diatrophies. Um, you don't have to turn there. Uh, just look up on the screen. Here's what Paul writes, for instance, in Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And he's talking about people in the church. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's why it's an insult, by the way, to be called a Cretan. Have you ever been called a Cretan? <laughs> This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. 
that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them so that they return to sound doctrine. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Kind of strong words. And, and, then, and then Paul in Acts, Acts chapter 20, he says this as he's getting ready to leave Ephesus. A place where he just, he, he, his heart was in Ephesus. But he, he says this, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Pay attention. Be careful. God has given you this responsibility as an overseer for the flock, and part of that means you have to protect, which he obtained with his own blood. This is Jesus' blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He, Paul, we mentioned this last week. Paul is saying, look, the biggest challenge you're going to have when it comes to false teachers is not necessarily from the world but from people inside your church. The wolves will get into the pen. They'll get into the sheepfold. Okay? And, and he writes, John writes, whoever does evil has not seen God. God is goodness, and that's all of him. Even his judgment, his wrath, and his discipline. We hate to think of God's goodness as being um, wrapped up also, besides his love and grace and mercy, but it's also his judgment, his wrath, and his discipline. I, I was um, reading some stuff uh, recently, and, and I was captured by, by this, this author who said this. He says, every generation has attempted to recreate God in its image. Every generation has got a different idea about what God should look like, and then they recreate God in their image, okay? Do you know what our generation, our generation's God is that we've recreated? God is a loving therapist who would never judge us. That's how we've recreated God in our generation. A loving therapist who would never judge us. Okay, have you read Malachi chapter 3? Have you read Joel? Oh, 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 have you read Revelation? <laughs> There's going to be judgment. Okay. And, and here's the thing that, that gets me. Um, I, I, I think I've talked about this before on Sunday morning. When you talk about God's wrath, most people think of his active wrath. That scary, you know, lightning bolt, um, angry, active, coming after you kind of wrath, Right? What, what we hardly ever talk about, but which is all over the Bible, is what we call God's passive wrath. His passive wrath. And trust me when I say his passive wrath should be far scarier to every one of us than his active wrath. Far scarier. Because his passive wrath is when he finally says, I'm done trying to get your attention. It's, it's Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then what does he say? Three different times, what does he say? God turned them over to their lustful desire. He, he took his hands off. He quit disciplining them. He quit his active wrath. That should be far scarier. If you feel, uh, and we all do to some extent, I get it, but you feel like God just... He's disciplining me, he's punishing me, he's, you know, he's mad at me, whatever that is, at least he's still with you. But the minute you can start behaving any way you want and you don't feel anything from God, that's when you better start to worry. 
that's when we're in trouble. Okay? Verses 11 and 12, walk well. Just very simply, walk well. What happened to my paper clip? There we go. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So he says, don't imitate Diotrephes. He's a problem, but imitate Demetrius as he imitates God. Now, who's Demetrius? Well, we don't know, but we do know what he is. He's the anti-Diotrephes. He is also one who received and supported others. He's treating these emissaries, these missionaries, as they should be treated. So John's saying, walk in a manner that, Diotrephe, uh, that Demetrius is walking. It, it's Paul saying in Ephesians and Philippians and many of his other letters, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. Walk in a manner, live your life in a manner that's worthy of the calling that's been given to you, placed on you by God. And how might we walk? Well, uh, we did this a, a couple of months ago, but it's Ephesians 5.1. I think, oh, it was Josh Prather who uh, taught this one. That's right. Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So, uh, years ago, when I was like 10, we went to San Diego, our family went to San Diego, Mission Beach. Nobody from Arizona ever goes to San Diego, right? So anyway, Mission Beach, and my dad's walking on the beach, and I'm walking behind him, and we're walking in that area where um, the water comes up, but it's not there all the time, so the sand is not dry, but it's not in the water, it's wet. So he's walking along, and he's making footprints in the sand, and I'm walking behind him trying to put my foot in it. Do you understand? That's exactly the image that Paul, that Paul is trying to give us there when he says, be imitators of God as his children and walk in love. That's, that's the, the image but not with your earthly father, with your heavenly father. That's, that's the image that Paul is giving us there. And, and John's saying the same thing. He's saying imitate Demetrius as he imitates God. Paul says the same thing too. He says imitate me as I imitate God. And then finally, verses 13 through 15, the value of what I call flesh on flesh. I know some people feel like that's an awkward term. I, I think that's the best way to describe it. The value of living in genuine, proxemic community with others. Not in cyberspace, but physically in proximity with others. Flesh on flesh. Rubbing elbows, friction, tension, relationship, and community. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends, every one of them. It's the value of being in face-to-face. -face. I, I know that we can go on to social media and we can share our God stories. And that may be the only way we can get our God stories to some people, and that's a great way to do it. We have more access to more people today than we've ever had. It still does not replace genuine face-to-face, flesh-on-flesh relationships. And there is no case that can ever possibly be made that you can be a Christian and not be part of a physical faith community. It can't happen. We are a body. A body does not function with each member in isolation. If I got one arm over there, one arm over there, a foot over there, another foot over there, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We are a body. We have to be in physical proximity. It's the only way that we can genuinely look somebody. By the way, there is no intimacy through screens. Even if you're FaceTiming somebody, there's something physical. The researchers are coming out now with all this stuff. 
the researchers are saying, look, you can't have the same physiological intimacy of looking somebody in their eyes through a screen. You have to be face-to-face, and that's the greatest form of intimacy is looking in their eyes. That can only happen when you're in physical community. So encouragement is more real in person. Faith is more real in person. Strengthening and equipping is more real in person. I'm glad we have the tools of the internet. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the 50s. Trust me, that's not my shtick. I'm telling you, if we just depend on that stuff, though, we're going to be in big, big trouble. There is tremendous value in genuine community and relationship. And, and I'll just wrap up by saying, if you don't believe that, think about how much time Jesus spent with his community and his disciples and how important that was to him. He wanted to be with them. And it frustrated him sometimes to be with him, with them, right? Don't you get frustrated sometimes coming to church? There's, a, there's those people there. But there's also great joy coming to church. Because there's those people there. (laughs) And Jesus knew that. He was God. He was perfect. He was holy. But he hung in with the disciples. Can't imagine how many times he was really kind of (laughs) thinking, after the resurrection, you're going to get this. Don't worry. (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and truth. We thank you for your sovereignty and your love. And we just pray that Uh, We'd take these words of John that we've looked at these last two weeks, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would apply them to our lives. When the Holy Spirit illuminates your word, your wisdom, and takes that and applies it to your people's hearts and minds, things happen. Faith is lived out. Faith is manifested. We become people who, who live like Demetrius and not Diotrephes. Let us all walk in that imitation. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.